This week's podcast is brought to you by BTSR. Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond has been preparing women and men for all areas of ministry for over 25 years. We offer a wide variety of degree programs with specialization in areas like social justice, religious freedom, and business administration. Our doctorate in ministry degree is specifically designed to help ministers take their ministry to the next level. If you would like to learn more about our D-Man degree, join us for an informational webinar on Tuesday, January the 24th at 2 p.m. Please see our website, btsr.edu, for more details. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Church Starts Conversation. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship and interviews of people doing groundbreaking work of partnering together and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from church starters, pastors, and practitioners. This is Andy Hale. On this week's conversation, we will feature Christopher Jones, church starter and pastor of Restoring Hope Fellowship. This church start gathers and serves in Levon, Texas, a growing community of Dallas. Before we jump into our conversation with Christopher, we want to remind you of a few upcoming opportunities within the life of the fellowship. ChurchWorks creates a space for renewal and ministry through practicing creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. ChurchWorks is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation within a congregational setting. This year's conference will be held in Jacksonville, Florida, February 20th through 22nd at Hendricks Avenue Baptist Church. Register and find out more information at cbf.net backslash churchworks. Well, for uh, CBF and Texas folks, you're you're definitely in, in kind of that connected field. You're uh, you went to Baylor, uh, then you from there you ventured on to Princeton. Um, but I guess uh, the first question is what what brought you back to Texas? What what brought you to this uh, calling of church starting? Well. Um, it's it's an interesting story and it's a total shock because I did not think that I even wanted to pastor, uh, let alone plan a start a church. And so it, it's completely shocking. Um, but when I graduated from Princeton in 2006, I had an opportunity um, to go to the University of Chicago and work on a master's degree in route to an ad hoc PhD that was going to merge um, social ethics and public policy. And the other option um, was to head down to the the VA hospital in Dallas and work on becoming a pastoral counselor and chaplain. Um, Honestly, what wound up happening is I realized that some of my immediate family was struggling financially, and I didn't feel right with going directly uh, to another graduate program. I wanted to to help out a little bit more um, in this area. And in the process of doing that, I fell in love with meeting with families and couples and just helping them through their issue. And then I started to see how if just working with local people um, on that one-on-one or small group um, focus was actually something that I could do, that I can even integrate some of my social justice and my political uh, thoughts into it. And so came to Texas, fell in love with the area, wound up meeting a woman from Iowa and married her. And she had zero intention of moving from Texas. And so we just kind of stayed here. That's awesome. Now, uh, people that are in the Dallas area are probably very familiar with cities and towns like Levon, but, um, you know, what is it about this particular town uh, outside the Dallas area that, that you sense to calling to? Yes. Um, 
again, this is a surprise. Uh, Levon reminds me of my small town, except it's a third <laughs> the size of my hometown, uh, Mahaya, uh, which is about 40 miles east of Waco. So Levon is this little small town. Um, it has a population of roughly 2,000, and it's a developing community. It Previously, it was just a lake town. Uh, there's a huge lake out here that's great for recreation, and people would just come to, they would just call it Lake Levon, going to the lake. The town itself didn't have much of an identity. What drew me to Levon is that I have this strong affinity um, for underrepresented communities, uh, for underdogs, um, for areas and people that are just somewhat looked over. And so I grew up in a small town, and I remember very vividly wondering um, if small towns receive the same amount of attention as cities. And so coming from a background that wanted to merge ministry with social justice, I saw a lot of the resources and attention that was being pumped into urban areas as well as suburban areas, but virtually no one was talking about rural communities. And so I was really drawn to Levon. Um, and when I found that there were only two known churches in this area, um, and then I looked at that uh, and I realized that of those churches, they were pretty much 95 plus percent uh, one racial ethnic group, um, restoring hope already having a multicultural identity as well as a justice oriented identity um, I felt led to try to do something a little different in this community. And considering that the median age of our church was 31 and the average age of the churches that I was seeing was where the median age was around uh, 58. Um, I thought that there was just a huge gap that needed to be addressed. And so I, I really I prayed about it for a couple of months. And I didn't realize in the process of praying that my wife and I were going to move here as well. Because uh, another feature of Levon is that it's very affordable. Uh, Collin County is the county um, that Levon sits in, and it is um, one of the fastest growing counties um, in Texas and also one of the wealthiest counties per capita. And so a number of people moving here for the educational system and other things. And so what we're finding is that as people attempt to move into Collin County, some of them are becoming overextended financially um, in the housing market. Well, Levon is an exception to that. Uh, the houses here are extremely affordable. Uh, just to give you an idea, um, if I were to live about three miles in any direction uh, of my home, I would be sp paying about 60 to 120,000 more uh, right. for the actual house. Um, so Levon is a very affordable area and I could sense that a number of people who are trying to get into their first home or trying to find an affordable house in a county that has good ed good educational system would be attracted to this area. And so um, we made that move to Levon. Hmm. You know, I think one of the things that's always impressed me the most about um, who you are is the depth um, by which you do everything that you do. And just, oh, thank you. you know, just hearing you talk about um, wow, there's just kind of this, um, really profound understanding of who the church is and what the church can be within the community. Um, you know, where was that bread from? You know, uh, when did you start to learn that? Is, you know, what, what about your, um, your upbringing and your education kind of led you to that depth of ministry? Yes. My, my family, small town family, very close knit, um, they really emphasize education. And there are a few people in my life, my mother mainly, um, then my mother, uh, my maternal grandmother, and my maternal grandmother and mother are both still alive, and they're also best friends. And my grandmother's best friend was another woman uh, by the name of Ada Connor. 
Um, and then there was another man who was a great, great uncle of mine named Lavert Price. I was the youngest of three boys, and I was kind of picked on um, by my siblings. And so I hung out with older people. And I would very frequently hear my mom, my grandmother, as well as the generation above them just talking about issues. And I just listened. I just somewhat listened. And so they would tease me because they would state that I was an old soul. They would really emphasize the need to empower uh, the African-American community in our area, as well as the it was, it was a large Mexican-American population in our community as well. And so they would talk about things. Uh, my mother actually um, got into local politics. Uh, she became a city councilwoman for a number of years. And so they wanted to understand the root of issues. And so from there, what wound up happening is I did very well um, in elementary as well as a uh, secondary school. And then I went to college. And at Baylor, I had an incredible professor by the name of Sharon Dowd. Um, Sharon Dowd, I, I, there's not enough words that can be said. She really emphasized read as much as you can on any subject and study it to the depths. Um, go in there, pray about it, let it sink into you. You want to understand views that you agree with as well as disagree with. And then there are two other professors, uh, one named Dr. Kennedy, as well as Dr. Ellis. And, and those professors emphasize the same deal. Um, and so hearing them emphasize the need to research things well and to go as deep as you possibly could so that you understand the views for as well as against, and then ask a central question, how can you be a part of this? And then ask another question after that, how can you be a part of a group that's able to address that? And, and so those were, that, that was pretty much my orientation. So I would try to understand the root of issues as well as what the solution of it was. I really wasn't interested in just knowing something to know it. I was attracted to problems and figuring out how you can actually fix those problems. So um, all of these individuals encouraged me to go to Princeton. And they let me know if you really want to find a school that's both steep in theory as well as practical application, uh, you probably want to go there. And there's such a diversity in views that you're going to have an incredible time. And so when I went to Princeton, I did a lot of work in the seminary as well as the Woodrow Wilson School uh, Public Affairs. And, and I started theorizing on how you can fix stuff and what you can do about it. And I remember being teased by my colleagues of how I would take a two-page assignment and make it into like a 15-page book. Let me give you an example. <laughs> uh, my senior thesis was supposed to be around 15 to 30 pages. It was 90 pages, Andy. It was almost a book. And, and they said, you really don't have to go into this much detail. I said, well, I'm kind of trapped with the analysis of how these issues occurred. And they asked me, why? said, well, what's happening is as I analyze what's really going on, I'm starting to see the different viewpoints of other sides. And I really think that if you understand where a person is coming from, it can help you converse with them so that you can build a bridge and you can start repairing this stuff. And so I spent a large amount of time just explaining the different views of people and then theorizing about how you build that bridge. And once you build that bridge, what are some of the first things you would like to tackle? Um, and so it was supposed to just do one of those. What will we tackle or how did this emerge? But it wound up doing both. Um, and I've just learned that that's just the way I'm, I'm cut. And I've tried to stop. <laughs> I've attempted to be less verbose. And I've told people it's not that I'm extremely redundant. It's that the approach that I take 
in thinking and analyzing things as well as offering a solution might be more than what someone's asking, but I haven't been able to control myself enough to just give people less information. And so I really like <laughs> the root uh, and the cause. And then I want to start talking about now, now that we know, well, the root and the solution, now how do we actually put this into practice so that we can do something about it? Because I, I think we really should co-labor. Um, with God as well as our brothers and sisters in order to make our world a better place. Well, let's, let's go back for just a second. 15 page assignment and you turned in 90 page. Yeah, there is pages. some graduate assistant <laughs> or PhD coming out of Princeton that is still cursing your name to this day. <laughs> when I was in seminary, you, you, you know, for the most part, most of your papers average 15 to 25 pages or so. And, and I always wanted to just type in the middle of one of those papers. Are you actually reading this paper? Just, just to kind of see if they're actually truly engaging this in the way that I'm truly engaging the assignment. But uh, you could have pulled that off a couple of times with nine. <laughs> I believe so. And, and I had that same thought, especially when it came to documenting things in footnotes. Uh, I just wondered. <laughs> oh, footnotes are a great way to make a, you know, a 10 page paper, 20 pages. Cause hey, you're using footnotes at the bottom of the pages. You're instructed, but uh, yeah, I, I'm the same way. I, I still to this day type out full manuscripts for sermons. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hitting 16 to 17 pages a week just for sermon prep alone. So I, yes, I, I, yes. I mean, that's single spaced, you know, Oh, wow. 12 point font. So, yeah. Uh, so out of, out of our nerddom, let's, let's move on. Uh, <laughs> so very interesting name uh, for uh, this new church chart, uh, Restoring Hope Fellowship. Tell us about the name. Yes. Um, the name was not my initial choice, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, I wanted to name it Hosanna. It's my favorite passage in the book. Uh, well, um, in the Gospel of Mark is uh, the triumphant entry. And so I wanted to name the church Hosanna. Uh, but this name, Restoring Hope, just kept emerging. And, and it was really, really prominent. And so I asked my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, as well as a couple of other people, which name they really liked. And Restoring Hope just stuck. And I was a little <laughs> resentful at first because that wasn't what I wanted. Um, but as I thought more about it, it worked. It really did. Because what we were addressing as a church, well, th th there's a core, there are two things that we we're really addressing um, at the root of who we are. Some people had an issue with God. And we quickly learned that they really didn't have an issue with God. They had an issue with some of the things they had been taught about God. Um, as well as the timing of certain things occurring in their life. And so they had lost an element of hope and sometimes even lost belief altogether in God. And so we wanted to restore hope in individuals' belief in God as being fully loving, uh, fully powerful, able to do incredible things. And the other thing that we wanted to restore hope in is the power of the church. We really believe that the church is the bride and that we are supposed to be the light and we are supposed to be the salt. And we should improve things. And so I really studied uh, Dr. King's writings a lot. And that term co-laborer with God was really, really important to me. And so we wanted to emphasize the need to restore hope that the church is able to do incredible things. God is able to do incredible things. The church is able to do incredible things. But what we're finding, that people really don't know what to address, or they feel somewhat overwhelmed, or they think it's so bad that nothing can be done about it. 
And so we wanted to restore the belief that something can really be, be improved. And so we would emphasize, you know, the now and the not yet dimensions of the kingdom. And we would emphasize how we're called to be a part of the building of God's kingdom. We're not the primary element. Uh, that, that's, that's the spirit. Uh, but we are a, a crucial component of building God's kingdom. So how do we go about it? So what we did is we tied these theories together. And we also connected them to things that people like from their jobs to the way they function in their families, um, as well as just their hobbies. And we asked a central question, how can what you do on a regular basis be seen as an avenue that can actually transform a life? And it can be as simple as you going and dancing from time to time um, or just having a good time. Um, or watching television or relaxing or not exhausting yourself on the weekend, different things along those lines. So we would emphasize to people some of the things that you do just for fun, as well as some of the things that you do with an intentional effort to improve lives. These are all viewed as elements of co-laboring with God to make life different. And your activity will help restore someone's hope that things are going to improve. Um, for a second there, and you're talking about uh, your girlfriend was the one that suggested your name. I was going to give you an opportunity to to fix that and correct that, but you you quickly <laughs> quickly clarified that. It's, it's your wife. So, uh, speaking of which, uh, congratulations are in order. You are a father for the second time. Yes, yes, yes. Exciting days. Exciting days. Well, how has family? You know, family. Uh, you're a father of two. Um, you're a husband. Um, how has that played a part in in the work of starting a new church? Yes, it's um, it's very important. Um, Restoring Hope is actually a family centered church, and we do acknowledge that families can include couples as well as us singles. Um, having a wife and now having two kids extremely important because I'm sitting there wondering about things such as college funds. Um, now that I have a daughter, I wonder about her first date. <laughs> so, uh, and so there are some really, really practical thoughts um, that I have. And Restoring Hope is intending to be a church that really functions in the practical aspects of our lives. And, and so it gives me inspiration because we actually want to plant something that our kids can grow up in and enjoy. Coming from a small town, um, you, we would joke and say, you have church or you have trouble. Um, that's pretty much the only options that we had when I was coming up. Now, in Levon, it's a little different. There's a lot more stuff to do within about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minute drive from here. And so there are more options. Uh, but the centrality of the church is very important to me. And we want our kids to grow up in Sunday school. We want them to grow up knowing what it is like to go to a church that's being built from the ground up. Um, knowing what it's like to have brothers and sisters that you go to church with, they're also your friends and to be the same person in church as you are in school. Um, and so that's bringing a deeper dimension uh, into our faith and is helping us to think generationally. Uh, starting a church I've learned is the hardest thing I've ever done. It is far harder than getting married. <laughs> it is far harder than some of the sports I engage in. It is the most stressful task I've ever ventured in. And just thinking of it generationally helps uh, because it allows for me with my type A personality to kind of pull back some and say that not everything has to be done immediately or even has to be done uh, during my lifetime. Let's just focus on laying a solid foundation to where we get a group of like-minded people together who are trying to do something for the community. And so knowing 
well, believing that our kids will inherit the church and our kids' kids might still be in this community inherited. And we have no idea what the leadership will look like in the future, but we just trust that if we instill the right principles in the people, uh, that they're going to make sure that this is a kingdom-focused uh, church. And you really saved yourself twice. You you said that church work is more difficult than marriage, though I am going to go ahead and put it out there that if Kara was on here, she might be... Even yeah, she might say bit. something opposite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, it's fascinating. We actually were having a conversation recently um, around our children. And, um, you know, we had uh, Madison three months before we started Mosaic. Of course, Aubriana came along a couple years later. Oh, wow. And it's just funny you think about it. It's like my kids literally don't know anything but this new church start. That's the only model of church that they know. Um, so when you talk about, you know, you want to raise your kids in a church that um, will be theirs, that they can be a part of, that is part of their future. And there's exactly there's something to that, the, that you had the ability to um, help be a part of reshaping the culture of the church as we know it. And um, your unique calling and unique giftedness has definitely served you um, to put your best foot forward in, in doing that in Levon and whatever comes next, you know, as you're really embarking on this journey. So as you think about um, what's prepared you for church starting, uh, how do you feel like you're uniquely gifted for this role? Yeah, the greatest gift that I, that is is so odd, um, is that I'm actually a really shy person, a very shy person. Um, People who know me don't think so. (laughs) And they're an element. The, the social skills that I've had to learn just to survive life, get jobs and be promoted on jobs um, has forced me to be a lot, to pay much more attention uh, to engaging people in conversations as well as relationships than I really feel comfortable. Um, but my childhood as well as adulthood of being shy put me in a situation to where I really listen to people. And I'm somewhat you know, social phobic. Um, so I really don't like crowds. And it's weird because if you were to take me to like a party that has maybe 50 people in it, I would be extremely uncomfortable to where you would literally find me go to the corner of a room and talk to maybe one or three people. Um, and that, that's just what I'm inclined to do. Now, I'll probably resist it, uh, but I'm inclined to do that. But you put me in a setting of a church um, there can be 100 people around me. Um, and as long as the service is going on, I'm relatively comfortable. It's the oddest thing. But what I realize is when I'm uncomfortable or when I'm just really trying to get to know someone, I really want to talk to that person. I want to see what's important to them. And what they identify as being important is what then becomes very important to me. And so I'm highly influenced by a lot of stuff. I'm not a competitive person at all. Um, And so there's nothing inside of me that's really driving me to emphasize one set of needs over another. I just want to try to address many deals. And so how does that relate to church leadership? For me, the church is about individuals encountering God, discerning what God is asking for them to do and engaging them. So my shyness led to me really being comfortable with just one or two people or three people and then getting to know them very well, um, just kind of as a coping skill. And as I engage them on those levels and on those conversations, I developed a set of skills um, that's basically interviewing. And so I would just get to know people. Then I take what I've learned from these individuals 
And I actually figure out how to both integrate it into what the church does and empower them to actually be a part of the solution. So it's, it's kind of unique. I have learned, of course, when I do it, it just seems natural. Um, but I've talked to leaders who've gotten to know me and say, it's really interesting how someone can come to you with a concern or just in a conversation and you can create an entire ministry around it and involve that person. The person might not be the leader of it, but they're somewhat involved. And, and so I found that shyness has in some unique way led to me being able to discern problems in people's lives and communities, as well as empowering people almost immediately in order to address it. And so, uh, so that's part A of that. Now, part B is that now I'm actually beginning to learn how to help these same people that feel empowered now to connect with other individuals so that they can develop an entire team. Because now we're involved in this church plant and we're trying to start small groups and the like. And, and so actually mentoring these people into seeing how something that's a part of their testimony, if you will, can actually be used to improve their lives, other individuals' lives, and be a driving force behind building a church that's actually seen in the community as doing something for people. That's good stuff. Um, I forgot how I was going to ask this next question, so let me rephrase what I was going to say. Um, okay. What type of work do you feel like you engross yourself in? Yeah. Now, um, there are two things. Uh, family, family studies from counseling um, to figuring out, you know, the best ways to raise your kids safely, things along those lines, anything that has to do with someone raising their family, both in faith as well as functioning well. And, and the second thing would be communication. It's weird. I took two speech courses in seminary as well as two homiletics courses. Um, and if I could go back to seminary, I would tell them, group the speech and the homiletics into one semester and require for me to take two and a half years of communication through graphic design, uh, social media, uh, and the like. Because what I'm finding that as I study about families and how things function well, now I need a new set of skills to communicate. And it's not the typical sermon that I grew up on and that I've even been trained to deliver, many different styles of preaching, um, but there's a certain approach. I'm almost realizing the need to take graphics, uh, clips from songs, clips from uh, videos, as well as designing uh, different deals that are just kind of catchy, little pithy sayings uh, that can just really touch someone and stick with someone. I'm having to learn how to design these um, and how this design can actually become almost mnemonic uh, so that a person is able to remember and apply it a little bit better. And so I'm really spending a lot of my time with graphic, video, um, elements uh, as well as social media and uh, just family studies slash um, family marriage and family counseling. That's interesting. It's, you know, knowing as a detailed person, person enjoys research and kind of the depth of things to have to uh, really reshape the way you deliver a message. Um, but it, it speaks to understanding your context. It speaks to really understanding how people want to be communicated to. Um, what has been some good practice to help best prepare you for that? Yeah, uh, YouTube is my best friend, <laughs> just to be honest with you. Um, I learned a lot of stuff from YouTube. Um, I, I go to Princeton's website and Baylor's uh, academic websites quite often. Um, 
after I graduated uh, seminary, I realized that I didn't buy hardly any books for a couple of years. I visit those websites to see which courses are being offered and to see the required reading. And I select a few books to read from there just so that I can make sure I'm staying sharp with the, with the latest um, thinkers um, and the major authorities in a certain area. And so get it from the academic theoretical side, but then there's the, the practical side. And I found that YouTube is extremely helpful. I also probably have about four subscriptions uh, to great, great things. Um, like if there's anyone involved in church leadership, I would tell them you must get a subscription to Creation Swap. Uh, for me, I'm not a graphic designer, and I really don't have the time um, as a church planner to learn that skill. But I can take a basic template and do some very creative things with it. And so for a very nominal fee, I'm able to get some very basic templates and do some things with them so that our graphics are strong. Um, I've, I've also subscribed to Adobe Creative Suite. Um, and so with that one, um, everything from a lower third that appears uh, in a video to where you might, during a sermon, make a really good point and you would like to add some notes, if you would, at the bottom of the screen so that someone who's watching this on their phone or, or even on the computer at home would be able to follow a reference or go to a certain area. Um, that was a really hard thing for me to do when I was just trying to learn how to do it. Uh, but some of the websites that we're able to use come with basic templates and you can just type stuff in and you can do some minor editing, but it's something that you can teach yourself just watching um, videos on YouTube as well as some of the tutorials that are in these different sources. And so I try to stay academically on top of things. Um, and I also want to make sure that I'm learning things practically to see what's really going on because uh, the way technology is, it's going so fast. It's really hard for a person in general to keep up. And as a minister, when you have so many irons in the fire, uh, it becomes even more challenging. And so those shortcuts are really helpful for me. What do you think has been the most rewarding part of the church start journey? Yeah. yeah. Um, no longer being depressed. <laughs> that's, that's probably not the, the answer that almost anyone would expect. Mm. Um, but anyone who knows me um, would know that in my early life, um, I was I was clinically depressed, and my mom was an incredible mom. Um, and I openly acknowledged that on multiple occasions I attempted suicide. Um, I, I developed a, an element of maturity um, during my studies at Baylor and Princeton, uh, to where I realized that my life was really important. And also, um, about seventy percent of my high school friends uh, are either um, deceased or incarcerated, and. And that's touched me in a major way to uh, I'm realizing just how, how important and how fragile life really can be. So I'm trying to make the best of mine. What's happened since coming out of school to actually being involved with the church plant is that I met some people who not only believed in me, but they also felt that I was important and valuable. The majority of the depression that I experienced in my younger years had to do with being compared to uh, my middle brother, who was an exceptional athlete, a ladies' man and everything. And I was just this little shy kid in my mind. Um, and so I was compared to him um, in, in, in a racial dynamic that some of us really don't talk about is I'm also a very light-hued African-American. And so I joke with people and say that I am a post-Nino Brown uh, from New Jack City uh, brother. Uh, Nino Brown um, being you know, Wesley Snipes, um, darker-hued African-American. 
um, came in as the gangster who was really attractive um, and a number of people were drawn to him. So I remember being teased and told, well, if you were about 10 shades darker, you would actually be handsome. And I don't have the deepest voice. And many of the brothers in my mind, they had really deeper voices. And so I didn't feel like I was fully man and it bothered me. And I didn't feel like I was fully valuable and I wasn't as good an athlete as my brother. I was a good athlete. I mean, for goodness sakes, I won regionals uh, in powerlifting, um, uh, placed um, many instances as well as placed in state. Um, And I was um, a leader in the regionals in track. And so I I was a really, really good athlete, but I didn't feel like I was a good athlete. And I can look on it and tell that I was, but I didn't feel that way because I wasn't the best like my brother was the best. And so I felt really insignificant and that I wasn't that important. When I met people, who were going through something that I had pretty much just finished going through myself. And because I'm in tune to giving someone quality time and really spending time with them and hearing where they are and then pointing them, uh, you know, toward resources that they can get help. They felt like someone really listened to them and they felt cared for. And that pulled me, that feeling, that realization that I was valuable really pulled me from depression. And to be honest with you, Um, In many ways, you know, church planning has helped me find just how important I am. And as a gift of God, I mean, looking at the gifts that God has given me, it's really even deeper than my faith in God to where I can see how God is so mysterious. And and, and just to close uh, that thought on this, all of this led me to coming up with a really interesting definition of the word grace. Growing up, people would tell me grace is unmerited favor. I came up with a different definition. Um, And it was grace is God's mysterious refusal to allow for creation to destroy itself. Again, God's mysterious refusal to allow for creation to destroy itself. And when I thought about that, I looked at how we as humans are kind of trying to destroy ourselves uh, and destroy others. And somehow things never get as bad as they could. And I looked at my life and although I was even trying to eliminate my own life um, and, and I just felt like I wasn't important and how a number of people mistreated me, um, and even to this day, you know, um, life is life. You still go through elements of being mistreated. And I saw how people would harm, harm you. I realized that in the midst of all of this, God's hand is still there holding enough of the pieces together to where things never fully unravel and to where you're able to move forward and to do something for yourself as well as to do something for someone else. And you learn from this, you're strengthened from it. And in many cases, you're sensitized to that suffering And you try not to repeat that suffering. And you also try to help other people get out of that type of suffering. And and so just coming from that, church planning pretty much taught me all of these things. Because as I thought about it, you know, I'm engaging in this church start and it's so important. But I literally am working with a group of people that can help individuals who are experiencing the same things I'm experiencing or have experienced. And we can maybe even prevent um, the fact that some will experience some of the things that I've gone through. Christopher, thank you for sharing and vulnerability and sharing your story. Um, thank you. It should be noted that Christopher did put a request in that uh, he be allowed to turn in a 90-page <laughs> manuscript and appendices to go along with this podcast episode. So if you'll just uh, be patient and waiting and should be able to find a link as you download this uh, and, and enjoy the reading from Christopher. <laughs> I love it. Sounds good. All right, my friend, it's good to be with you. Well, thank you, sir. It was, it, was a, it was a joy, Andy, and I hope you have a good one. Thank you, you too. 
This has been a podcast by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. For more information about the fellowship and all our amazing initiatives and partnerships, visit cbf.net. Be sure to click on the Church Starts link where you can find blogs written by our church starters that are across the United States, uh, serving in many different types of contexts and models of church starting. Uh, Be sure to like us on Facebook, CBF Church Starts.